Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so wonderful to see all your smiling faces. And for those of you who aren't smiling, it's wonderful to see you too. So before we jump into the sermon today, I felt the need to address some current events. So uh, recently we had a vote uh, this past Tuesday, and depending on where you stand on some of those things, that vote either went your way or it did not go your way. Um, But uh, we've got to be a little careful. Um, so I, I, I want to, I want to give some warnings here with the vote. I know, I know for a lot of people, uh, you know, specifically on issue one and on issue two, those, those were big votes for conservative Christians. Um, but I just want to give hope this morning. God is sovereign. Amen. That means that God knows what he's doing. Amen. God's will is perfect. And no matter what, Jana talked about this a little in the worship set, but no matter what happens, nothing is out of God's control. You know, there's, there's a, the, big, the big philosophical question is why does God allow these things to happen, right? But here's the thing, y'all, God doesn't do plan Bs, right? God's plan is perfect. And everything that happens is in his plan. So the question isn't why does God allow these things to happen? The question is, why did God want this to happen? Because as much as this blows our minds, this was God's plan. And so we've got to ask the question, why did God want this to happen? What do we need as Christians to wake up to? Why did God need to do this to wake us up to some of these things? And so we've got to pay attention to those things. So instead of lamenting, Instead of wringing our hands and why, God, why? I'm not saying that's bad to do. Go to him with your feelings. Tell him how you feel. But instead of spending all of our time doing that, let's ask him, all right, God, what do we need to learn from this? What is your plan and purpose behind this? Because he does have a plan and a purpose. Second point, now, more than ever, we need to act like Jesus, right? I'm very thankful because I'm not on social media anymore. I got rid of that junk, right? And and this was part of the reason why this was the the I've been on and off social media, but but the last time when I finally had enough and was like I'm done for good, it was right after the Supreme Court made that Roe v. Wade decision, and they they handed down legislation to the states. Christians posting on Facebook and social media, ladies and gentlemen, not like Jesus. There goes your abortion, whores. Christians posting that. Y'all, are you kidding me? And I said, I'm done. I can't be on this because this is toxic. 
And for any follower of Jesus to think that that's appropriate, but y'all don't fall into the trap on the other end. So now you lost your election. Don't throw stones. Don't sling mud. Don't play that game. Yes, it's unfair. The world is allowed to call you names. The world is allowed to throw stones. That's how they play. You cannot play that game. Jesus will not let you play that game. Now, more than ever, when the world looks at you, they don't need to see a pouty Christian who's sad that the election didn't go their way. They need to see Jesus. And they need to see you love like Jesus loves. And finally, this is my final point on all of this. There is a fantastic verse in the Bible. I had my children memorize it. It comes from Psalm 40 in verse 8. It says, I delight in doing your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to push on something here. The goal of Christianity, the goal of being a disciple of Jesus, has never been to legislate morality. Okay? Now, does that mean that we shouldn't have moral laws, that we shouldn't have just laws? No, we want to have that. But guys, that's not the end goal of Jesus. The end goal of Jesus is to make us want to do his will, to make us want to walk in his commandments. So can I challenge whether the government under which we're living enforces moral laws or not, our mission never changes. Our mission is the same as Christians. We want to want to do God's will. And we want to bring others with us. And so especially in a setting where the laws may not fit what God says, our goal is still to make people want to do God's will. Does that make sense? We want to make people delight in doing God's will, whether the law says they should or not. You can look back at the nation of Israel, right? When Israel was in Egypt, the Egyptians' laws didn't match God's laws. When Israel was in captive in Babylon, Babylonians' laws did not match God's laws. Did that mean the Jews stopped living according to their law, to God's law? Absolutely not. And so no matter what the United States government says, we as Christians continue walking under God's law. And our goal is to bring others with us. So who cares what the government says about abortion? Who cares what the government says about marijuana or whatever else, right? And, and, and look, who cares what the government says about pornography, right? There's no laws saying that pornography is illegal. But should Christians do it? Absolutely not, right? If we're going to be moral people, <laughs> let's be moral people. And the goal is, if we look like Jesus, if we act like Jesus, if we smell like Jesus, people are going to want to follow. And then it's not going to matter what the law says, because they will delight in doing God's will. Is that enough politics for today? We good on all of that? We have hope, ladies and gentlemen. We have hope. So let's not run around like people who don't have hope. Let's not talk like people who don't have hope. 
let's conduct ourselves in a way that shows people that we serve a God who gives us hope. That this is our temporary dwelling place. And we want to make it as good as we can while we're here. But our ultimate goal is Jesus. Our ultimate goal is heaven. And y'all, if we keep our eyes on him, if we keep anchored in him, if he is our delight, then it will be easy, even in the midst of horrible circumstances, it will be easy to give him praise. It'll be easy to live a life of grateful praise. So let's jump in, right? Let's continue growing in grateful praise. And let's look at how, even in the midst of all of this junk, we can still explode. We can still overflow with thanksgiving to our Lord and Savior for all of the ways that he has blessed us. So last week in this sermon series, we looked at what we could learn from two sets of lepers, right? Jesus heals 10 lepers. One of them comes back and says, thank you. The rest of them continue on their merry way. And we learned how vital it is to give thanks to Jesus for our blessings. The problem is we don't always see our blessings for what they are, do we? And so we've got to figure out our blessings. Today, you're going to see a lot of similarities. You're going to see a lot of the same things come out. But instead of looking at two sets of lepers, we are going to look at two sets of brothers. Jesus teaches a very famous parable from Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus says this, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began doing without. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed pigs." And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I am dying here from hunger. I will set out and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of, of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. So today, we are going back to our familiar three points. Last week was utter chaos, if you were here. We didn't have three points, and it was just wild and out of control. I didn't know what I was doing. I felt so lost. But today, we've got our three points that we can rest in. <sighs> Law and order is restored. We are back at it. So, the prodigal son. The first thing we want to look at today is we look at the lesson of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, in the story of the prodigal son. First, we're going to look at our part. What part do we play in the story of the prodigal son? Second, we're going to look at our focus and how that goofs up our gratefulness. And then finally, we are going to look at the blessing that we see in the story of the prodigal son. So first up, our part. Raise your hand if you have heard the story of the prodigal son before. Very familiar story, right? And it really doesn't matter how long you've been in church. If you've been in church for a long time, if you've never been in church, almost everyone has heard in some reference or something the story of the prodigal son. It's a very familiar story to us. And when the story is told, the majority of the focus is on the younger son. Almost always, that's where the attention turns. And it's because it's a great story, right? We all, at one point, have been that younger brother, right? In need of forgiveness, in need of grace. And the comfort that comes from knowing that this father in the story represents God. That this son who lost everything, who spent everything that the father had given him, completely trashed it. And the father comes running to him. Doesn't just take him back. Doesn't say, you know, well, I'll take you back, but you got to go live in the servants' quarters. That's not what he says. He puts the robe on him, puts the sandals on his feet, completely embraces the son and brings him back in. It's incredible comfort. But the reality is, if we're paying attention to the story, the majority of us actually relate to the second brother more than we do the first brother. And that tends to be a story that flies under the radar. Because all the worship songs and all the stories are about the first brother, we forget to see what we can learn from the second brother. We've got to remember this. We are absolutely awful at this as people. Critical reading. Reading a text critically. I know you all hate this because this is getting dangerously close to English class, right? <laughs> yep, we're all getting the cold sweats and shivers and oh, I'm not going back there, Pastor. Nope, this is supposed to be church, right? But we've got to read these texts critically, even when it's the Bible, which means, I know you don't like this, but when you read something, you've got to ask yourself, who is the intended audience? You guys remember that from English class, right? When Jesus tells this parable, now we know this, every parable Jesus tells has a moral to the story, right? 
but you miss the moral of the story if you don't look at who the intended audience is, right? So we've got to ask ourselves, who is the intended audience? Who is Jesus trying to hit here with the moral of this story? And to find that, we've got to jump back to the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, because it sets the setting of this story. And this is what we're told. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, saying, Who's the target audience? It's the Pharisees, right? Now look, yes, there are tax collectors and sinners sprinkled in this mix. So is it wrong to look at the first brother and draw conclusions that Jesus is saying, if you come back to the Father, he will accept you with open arms? That's not a wrong conclusion, right? It's not a wrong moral. You can take more than one moral from a story. So that's not wrong. But the people that Jesus is specifically addressing here are the scribes and the Pharisees. They come to him and they complain. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells them this parable. And he actually tells three parables, right? The prodigal son gets a lot of the attention, but he also tells the parable of the man who goes out to find the lost sheep, right? He leaves the 99 to go find the one. Then the one I feel really bad about because this one gets completely lost in the shuffle. People like the lost sheep, you know, they like leaving the 99 to go save the one, so that gets worship songs. Nobody talks about the lady who loses the coin, right? That's the one that gets sandwiched in here and everybody's like, who cares? Dumb lady lost her coin, right? But a lady loses her coin, and so what's she do? She flips her house upside down. She moves everything around. She cleans. Look, uh, y'all, I just reorganized our basement yesterday, threw old toys away. You know how much I love doing that. (laughs) Right? It's a big deal to clean your basement. I relate to the lady who lost the coin. Man, alive. Jesus had that in store. I didn't even know I was cleaning the basement yesterday. He was ready for it. But we've made all of these parables about the lost thing. So much so that we've missed the moral of the story. Because when the shepherd goes out, when he leaves the 99 to save the one and finds it, what's he do? We don't know that as much, do we? He celebrates. When the woman turns her house upside down, cleans from top to bottom, and finds the coin, what does she do? She celebrates. And we don't get this in the story of the prodigal son. I think Jesus leaves this cliffhanger on purpose, right? Because when we get to the older brother, Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees and scribes, this is your part in this story. So what are you going to do? Because yes, I eat with sinners and tax collectors. Are you going to celebrate that? Or are you going to continue complaining that these are the people that I run to? 
that these are the people that I associate with. You know, I'm curious if the reason we don't ignore that side of the story is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Right? How many people in here want to be associated with the Pharisees? It's almost become a four-letter word these days, hasn't it? Right? And you get all these, you know, hyper-grace Christians who are, oh, yeah, Pharisees are so, yeah, we're not Pharisees. But, you know, the minute you become judgmental of Pharisees, you just became a Pharisee. You see, isn't that a tricky little, as whoop, whoop, right? It's like a magic trick, a little sleight of hand. Woo, yeah. But that's the reason why we emphasize the front part of this story so much. I don't want to think of myself as a Pharisee. I'm not one of those judgmental Christians, right? Right. It's tricky, isn't it? It's an unflattering look. But the reality is, and we talked about this last week, we're going to jump back to it. This is the parable of the landowner, right? That we talked about from Matthew 20. This landowner goes out and he hires people at the very beginning of the day, at the middle of the day, and at the very end of the day. And when it comes time, when the paychecks are being passed out, right? The people who were hired, who only worked one hour, they get a denarius. And then everybody who got hired at the very beginning of the day, is, you know, they're licking their chops because they're like, oh man, he promised us a denarius. And he just gave them a denarius, but they only worked one hour. Can you imagine what we're going to get? And then God, or God the, the landowner gives them a denarius, and Jesus tells us when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day's work and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wanted to give the last person the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. If we're paying attention, the complaint is the same in both of these stories. The workers, the older brother, the scribes, and the Pharisees. The complaint is, this isn't fair, God. It's that entitlement we talked about last week. God, I deserve better than this. But why? That's the big underlying question. Why do we default to this? And anybody, I don't care who you are, this is where we go during hard times, isn't it? Right? You wake up in the morning and you try to get out of your bedroom and you stub your toe and it's, God, <laughs> No one has suffered like me since Job. I've stubbed my toe in the night and I'm crying out. Right? I kid, but not far from it. Right? A paper cut. And it's the end of the world. Jesus, why are you doing this to me? Right? But the reason for it is the same. This is our default mode. And it's all because our focus is off. Anytime we turn to this, 
our focus is off. We talked about this a lot in our Beatitudes sermon series, right? Our aim in all of our Beatitudes, our aim is God, right? Our aim is Jesus. When we get off, our aim falls back to ourselves, right? This isn't popular. Charismatic Christianity and evangelical Christianity, all the things, you know, we want to make the devil the enemy. He's the devil's the enemy. Wrong, buddy. Wrong. Yeah, no, the devil is the enemy, but he's not public enemy number one. That's you. Myself. Jeremy Allen Metzger. I am the enemy. Because when my focus is off, it's not because I'm Jesus is here and I'm focusing on Jesus, but oh, look, the devil's over here. I'm going to go focus on him. Nobody does that. I mean, some people probably do, but it's always myself. My focus gets off because I want to throw a pity party for myself. My focus gets off because my problems are worse. Look at all these things that this person has. And he's not even a moral person. I do so much better than him, God. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. I, I, I. You see who the real enemy is here? It's that self, which is why at the center of the gospel is the cross. And Jesus saying, die to self and follow me. Because Jesus knows, God knows, if we can crucify ourselves, there's nothing left but Him. But we've got to get that self out of the way. This is the same issue. It's the same issue with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the workers in this parable, with the older brother. Their selfishness got in their way of seeing their true blessing. Look at the end of the story of the prodigal son. The father says to him, Your brother has come, and your father has, or I'm sorry, this is the servant says, Your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The workers, in the parable of the workers, they didn't care that the other workers only worked an hour. They didn't care that they made a denarius. They only cared that they didn't make more. That they worked harder. That they worked longer and they didn't make more. This brother, he didn't care that the father threw a party for his son. He just cared that he never did anything like that for him. And I'm sure if you really dug into it, the Pharisees and the scribes didn't care that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. I'm sure that at the root, that wasn't the issue that they had. The problem that they had is that there is this man who claims to be the Son of God. 
who is the long-awaited Messiah. And it's not just that he claims, look, I can go out to Walmart and claim to be the Son of God, and I'm not going to have a bunch of people wanting to invite me over for dinner, right? But he backed it up with these incredible miracles, healing people who were born blind, raising the dead, raising people who are lame, making them walk again. He works these incredible miracles to the point where not even the Pharisees can deny this man has to be at least a prophet, if not more. And he chooses to associate with people who don't look like they're following God at all. I mean, y'all, like, we got to be a little more sympathetic to the Pharisees here, right? Because we kind of throw them under the bus and we forget to, to at least think, why are they so angry at Jesus? Y'all, to become a Pharisee, you literally spent your entire life in school. I mean, you gave your entire life. Pharisees would have had to completely memorize the Torah, all of it. Like part of, part of the school was you had to actually write, like handwrite the entire Torah, which helps you to memorize the entire Torah, right? I mean, some of y'all are way more educated than I am, but like, this is like doctorate degree stuff, right? These guys are in school forever. They have worked their tails off. How would you feel, Kurt, pick on you, because I know you went to med school. How would you feel if I came up to you and I told you that I know more than medicine about you? I mean, it's really easy now because we got Google, right? Right? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming to these people and saying, hey guys, actually, my father, that's not what he meant. And these guys are thinking, what? Where did you come from? What are you talking about? And then on top of that, all he does is criticize these Pharisees, giving them a hard time and challenging them on absolutely everything. And then he comes and completely opens his arms to these sinners and tax collectors. How would you feel? Don't lie. You'd be angry, right? You'd be exactly like these workers in the field. You'd be exactly like this older brother. God, I've worked my tail off for you. And you won't even invite me over for dinner. You're having dinner with these tax collectors and sinners. You got prostitutes pouring out oil on your feet. And you won't even have a civil conversation with me. Right? These Pharisees had worked their entire life. And now this Messiah, who they've spent their entire life studying, shows up and says, you missed it. You missed it. And if we're not careful, we fall into that exact same trap, don't we? Well, this is what a Christian looks like. And Christians only vote this way. And Christians only do these things. And Christians only listen to Christian music and watch Christian movies and do Christian things. Right? 
we are far more pharisaical than we think we are. And if we don't recognize it, we'll never change it. And that's a problem. It's not a flattering look, is it? The reality is, though, this is human nature. Why is social media so popular? Because we can dress ourselves up and make us look any way we choose and post it in front of the entire world to see. But it's not real. And we can get on social media and behind closed doors we can judge every single friend we have. We all fall into this comparison trap. That's why social media is so popular, y'all. It gives me an outlet to compare myself to other people. And it gives me an outlet to portray myself in a flattering light so I can compare myself to other people. But the only thing comparison will ever get you is down this deadly hole of selfishness where it is so hard to come out. We talked about this last week with the lepers, right? You've been in this position of being a leper, being outcast from society your entire life. And it's conjecture. We don't know why the other lepers didn't come back. But there's part of it that makes you wonder, was it because we don't think to ourselves, well, why should I go back and say thank you? I deserve this, right? It's that entitlement. This is something, this is something that, that I deserve, right? God, I left everything. I left my comfort zone. I left my friends. I left everything and planted this church. Couldn't you, don't I deserve to watch the Browns win a Super Bowl before I die? Can, couldn't you just give me a little something? I'm just joking. <laughs> like I don't pray that every Sunday. <laughs> I kid, but I only kid to lighten the blow. Because the reality is, that's the game we play with God all the time. God, don't I deserve? Don't I deserve? Don't I deserve? Right? You deserve a donut. No, you don't. And instead of focusing on our blessings, we focus on the multitude of things that we don't have. We focus on all the things that God has given this person that he hasn't given us. And when we do that, we will never find contentment. We will never find joy. And we will never walk in the calling that God has called us to. We are so busy looking at how God works through other people that we completely miss how he's chosen to work through us. We want our, the gospel house to look like this church over here. Yet we miss what God's called the gospel house to look like. The great news is, God's response to us is always the same. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, His response is always the same. And that is our blessing. Now we've got to be a little careful here. Let's not graduate from the Beatitudes, right? Sermon series are great, 
I like sermon series. They're nice and organized. That's why I like my three-point sermons. They're nice and organized. I know where I'm going. You all know where I'm going. If I skip a point, you can all raise your hands and violently yell at me, wait, you missed point two. But we can't graduate. The danger is when we close the book on one sermon series, oh, okay, well, we're done with that teaching. On to the next one. That's not how this walk with Jesus works. Always builds. We're always growing. So don't leave the Beatitudes behind. What is our blessing? Right? We drilled this every week in the Beatitudes series. God himself is our blessing. Right? The danger we can get into, right? And this is a teaching that exists in Christianity out there. I'm not saying it's a correct teaching, but it is a teaching is that you got to count your blessings, right? So you go home and every night, you know, you before you get down on your knees and before bed, you fold your little hands and you say, God, I thank you for my house. I thank you for my car. Thank you for my wife. I thank you for my kids. I thank you for my PlayStation 5. I thank you for, and you go through the list of all the things that you're thankful for, right? And that's how you become, that's how you express gratitude. False, false, false. You hear me? False. Because listen, here's the deal. You wake up tomorrow and all of those things are gone. All of a sudden, you don't have anything to be grateful for. Is that what the gospel says? Absolutely not. Because the gospel says the house, the wife, the car, the kids, the PlayStation 5, it's all icing on the cake. The blessing is God himself. The blessing is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the blessing. And it can never be taken away from you. Never. God is our only blessing. It's like what we talked about last week when we read through Ephesians 1, right? Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus, which means you don't have to go anywhere else to look for it, and you don't have to fight for it, and you don't have to beg for it. It is already yours, but it is yours in Christ. You cannot access blessing outside of Christ. All of our blessings are in him. Anything that is not in him is a curse. That's not popular, right? Because that's saying if you obtained your wealth, if you obtained your money outside of Jesus Christ, it's a curse, not a blessing. Because the only thing it's capable of is distracting you from what he's actually called you to do. If we build this church... Outside of Christ, we use man's way to build it. We use all of the slick promotional things and Forbes 500 CEO strategies and all those things. And that's how we build this church. It is a curse and not a blessing because it is not in him. It's only capable of distracting us from what he's actually called us to do. So we have better make sure that all of our blessings, when we count our blessings, that they are blessings in Christ. And the same is true in the story of the prodigal son. Look at the father's response. We know the father's response to the first son, right? That's been drilled into our heads. But look at his response to the second son. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice 
because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Now, I know we have hammered this, and it hasn't just been in this sermon series or the last sermon series. I feel like all of 2023 has been just hammering this over and over again, right? My goal is God himself. At any cost, dear Lord, by any road. But y'all, I need to get my focus right. we're, We're not even that far from the last sermon series, right? Jeremy, I need to get my focus right. It is so easy to get off, isn't it? To have your focus just shift just a little bit. And then all of a sudden, the storms kick back up and, and trials come back in. And it's hands back up in the air. God, what are you doing? What's going on? And it's because I let my focus get off. My goal is God. And nothing that has happened to me has changed that. Nothing that has happened with any election, nothing that has happened with my loved ones, with anyone's health, with anything, has changed the fact that I have salvation in Jesus Christ. That at the end of all of this, no matter what, God is with me. Guys, let this soak in for all of us Pharisees out there. This is what God says to you. This is His response to you. You have always been with me. And everything that I have is yours. Let this set in. For the second week in a row, this is where we land. Last week, we were reminded in Ephesians 1 of Paul's prayer for us, right? The prayer that God prays over us, that our eyes would be open to everything that we have in Christ, all the ways that we are blessed in Him and who we are in Him. But now we get this parable straight from the mouth of Jesus. And we get these words that our Heavenly Father sings over us. God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, says these words to you. Personalize this. Y'all, personalize this. Every single one of you Hear what God is saying. You have always been with me. I have always been with you. And all that is mine is yours. Everything I have is yours. I honestly don't know what else to tell you if that doesn't make you overflow with thankfulness. How much better can it even get? It can't, right? This is what the God of the universe says. Guys, this is our gospel motivation. When life gets hard, when things don't go our way, 
when it feels like the world is spinning out of control and you just want to throw up your hands and say, God, I'm done. God says, I haven't left you. I am right here with you. Y'all, when I look back at who I used to be, a sinner, broken and stained, ugly and scarred by all of my selfish decisions. And Jesus still took me in. Jesus never stopped looking for me. I was the one that he left the 99 to go find. I was the coin that he cleaned house for, flipped everything upside down. I was the son who went out and wasted every blessing that he had given to me because I thought I could do it better. I thought my way was better than God's. And after all of that, he still brought me back into his house. But it doesn't end there. Because then after he brought me back into his house and told me, Jeremy, everything that I have is yours, I became judgmental. I looked at everybody who was walking with God in ways that he told me not to walk, and I judged them. I looked at everybody who wasn't walking with God, who was running from him and living the world's way, and I judged them. And instead of showing them love and compassion, I kept them at arm's length and said, the grace that was extended to me, you don't deserve. I have been both brothers. Anyone else? And God still hasn't given up on me. God still says, Jeremy, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. I don't know what dirty laundry you have in your closet. I don't know what clean laundry you have in your closet. But I do know that no matter which brother you relate to more, whether it's sinning against God by running away, or whether it's sinning against God by refusing to recognize Him while you're with Him, God's declaration to you right now is that He is with, is that he is with you and all that He has is yours. Now how you respond to that is entirely up to you. You can refuse to accept it. You don't deserve it. You don't want it. You can do it on your own. You can ignore it. You can continue being angry about the perceived ways that God has wronged you. Or you can fall down at the feet of the glorious Savior who paid everything to be with you for eternity. And you can worship him by surrendering your entire life to his will and his purpose. I am choosing to live in grateful praise to Jesus Christ. And I am going to tell everyone I know about how incredible Jesus is. Anyone with me? Let's stand and worship. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. 
You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.